Hello and welcome to another episode of Against the Law, the myth-busting ancient history podcast that aims to separate fact from fiction. This is a slightly different type of episode. Instead of looking backwards to the ancient past, we're casting our eyes forward to the present day to talk about classics education in the UK. As usual, certified two school for cool nerds Barney, Meg and Xenia are joined by Flo, who doesn't know much about ancient history, but is excited to learn in this episode why that might be. We're also very lucky to be joined today by Professor Arlene Holmes Henderson, who is a classicist and an advocate for classics education in schools. So, Professor, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Arlene Holmes Henderson and I'm a classicist at Durham University. You'll probably hear from my accent that I'm originally from Scotland and I work both in the UK and also internationally. Fantastic. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your work and what your biggest interests are in the world of classics? Yeah, so my my post is classics education and public policy. So I spend most of my time researching the learning and teaching of classics in pre-university settings. So that's primary schools and secondary schools. And then speaking to policymakers about what I've learned. So I speak to policymakers in the UK, but I also travel internationally to speak to governments who might be thinking about expanding the role of classics in their curriculum or maybe thinking about assessing classics in different ways and so I share what I've learned um, around the world with policymakers in the hope of making things better for everyone. That is beautifully done. Um, I I sincerely wish I had an Arlene Holmes Henderson while I was in year six so that I knew that I could carry on to learn all about classics Um, but we can't go back in time so now I'm on this podcast which is which suits me for the time being. We thought it'd be really interesting to look at our each of our journeys into uh, the world of classics. I say our like I have Um, but let's let's take a look let's talk to Xenia first. Xenia, what was your sort of journey into the world of classics? What what inspired you? So I was fortunate enough to go to a private girls secondary school and that was where I first encountered Latin in year seven and um, I, I, was a, I was a fairly sort of high achieving student but Latin it just it, it felt, learning Latin for me felt like being a fish in water. I, I can't even describe what it was. It just came so naturally. It, it felt so obvious. It was the first new thing that I'd done that I'd just been good at without like knowing how or why. And so it just became my, my absolute passion. And I was so excited to do well at Latin because if you did well at Latin, then in year nine, you could do Greek. And that was like my ambition all through years seven and eight. But it was it was in year eight that I decided that I wanted to do classics at university. It was a very, very clear moment for me. Um, and the moment actually came about by accident. Um, we were supposed to do a session in the computer room doing the um, famous Cambridge Latin course. They have like an online resources thing. Um, and we were supposed to be going into the computer room to like click on the really cool Latin stories and learn the words and learn about the grammar and stuff like that but the computer room was double booked. So our very creative Latin teacher decided to do a Roman style lesson in class instead. And most of the other people in the class took that as an opportunity to mess about, but she she decided to teach us the opening lines of the Aeneid um, because that's what you know Roman school children would have done. They would have learned famous ancient texts. Well, they weren't ancient to them, famous texts off by heart. And so 
we learned the opening lines of the Aeneid off by heart. And I remember going to bed that night and going uh, and reciting them over and over and over and over before I went to sleep because I just, I honestly thought they were the most beautiful things I'd ever heard. And that was when I decided that I wanted to study classics at university. That is so cute. You sound like an Enid Blyton character, though. No offence, you're a bit of a nerd. <laughs> I do, I do think that's the sweetest thing ever that you were so enamoured as a teenager. I love that you 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 got your passion for classics through a Roman style lesson. There's something quite sort of meta about that. Like you were inspired by actual Roman teaching. That's great. I wonder if we'll have to get Arlene to rate everyone's journey into classics at the end. <laughs> I'm absolutely not here to do any rating of any of these journeys <laughs> into classics, but I am um, going to do a bit of a plug here for a colleague of mine, Eleanor Dickey, who's at the University of Reading, who runs a project called The Ancient Schoolroom. And so she has, I guess, uh, professionalised this kind of opportune experience that um, Xenia had with her school teacher, And so so pupils from schools around the country now can go to the University of Reading and have that Roman schoolroom experience. And it's all funded, um, I think, by Reading and their outreach and by research councils. So um, if anyone's listening to this and think, oh, that sounds really cool, I'd like to do that with um, my class. If you're a teacher, then um, speak to Eleanor Dickey. Or if you're a student, you can bully your teacher into uh, <laughs> learning all about that. That is, that's really cool. So Xenia, your teacher was a bit of a trailblazer then without knowing it at the time through improvisational teaching skills. Yes, I suppose she was. She was an incredibly formative teacher for me. That is very special. Um, what, a, what a lucky occurrence. Meg, I'm going to go over to you uh, in the chronological order of things uh, to ask you about your journey into learning about the ancient Greeks. Ah, the ancient Greeks. Um, yeah, so like Xenia, I was very lucky and I did Latin at school. I was also at a private school, which is obviously where, unfortunately, a lot of classics education takes place. Um, and But actually, I do think it's kind of what like radicalised me in a way, because I now work in university access. Um, that is, that's my day job. I don't podcast 24-7. And I think the sort of visibility of the fact that like classics is a particularly unfair subject. Obviously, there's inequalities throughout education, but classics is one where you can really see it because it's literally not taught in lots of schools. I think that really radicalised me because I did it. I absolutely loved it at school and I absolutely loved it at university. And then I stayed at university for way longer than everyone else. I did a master's and did a PhD and just it completely changed me as a person being able to sort of devote that much time and put all that love into such a specific subject um and I've always ever since I first came into contact with that makes it sound like I'm like in Star Trek you know coming into contact with new life and new civilizations but when I first came into contact with these ancient civilizations I was just like yeah that's it that's for me um and it completely changed my life and changed my career path and everything so I have classics to thank for so much not only my like the thing that I got out of my education most of my PhD but also it is kind of what led me to my career path as well because it's what sort of made me open my eyes a bit to to all the inequalities in the education system so yeah like can't praise it enough absolutely love a bit of classics and of course, without classics, you wouldn't have met me. So that's so true, Flo. I can't believe that wasn't up there along with my career <laughs> and my PhD. Flo, yeah, so true. Transformative in lots of ways, obviously. Yes, totally. Interesting that you mentioned, Meg, that classics is 
predominantly taught in the independent sector and that you are a real fan of the Greeks, um, it's certainly the case that the study of the Greek language is almost exclusively now the domain of independent schools. So um, you may or may not be shocked to know that between 95 and 98% of the candidates sitting GCSE and A-level Greek in the UK come from the independent sector. So that's something which... I personally am worried about. I'm worried about the sustainability of this qualification going forward because 93% of young people go to state schools and we really need to see that qualification growing in the state sector. So maybe later I'll say a bit about what we're doing about that, but you've absolutely hit the nail on the head by saying that um, Greek is certainly the domain of the independent sector. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that even within classics, Greek is seen as sort of more niche, more like elite, perhaps. And it's maybe also got a bit of a bad reputation from people like a certain ex-prime minister. Um, So it's always been seen as, (laughs) yeah, even within that world, a little bit more down that road, which is interesting. I'm sensing a slight theme here, and I'm with trepidation. I'm going to ask you, Barney, how did you get into the world of classics? Hello. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, other than my sort of formal like educational exposure, um, I made the lucky discovery as a seven-year-old child in the back of a toy shop of a new PC CD-ROM computer game uh, of Age of Empires, and I didn't really know what I was doing when I was when I bought it. Um, I don't think I knew how complicated it was going to be for my um child mind but uh i bought this this strategy game age of empires in which you build little cultures and armies and fight them against each other um and i absolutely loved it so i i kind of had picked up this ancient history interest from a very young age um and was helped on my way by horrible histories of course which i think is a pretty classic pipeline for a lot of people um in the uk and beyond these days with the popularity of the tv show back when I was little it was just the books so I had the groovy Greeks Um, and this is actually now reminding me of my personal statement which I think I may have taken horrible histories out of it when I was at university but it was definitely (laughs) it was originally in there (laughs) Um, fantastic you know it's always been a it's always been a love of mine and so when I went to secondary school um, I went to a, a state grammar school so my school was selective um but not fee paying and I went to a grammar school that offered latin Um, So in year eight, I was able to choose uh, a language to learn and I had a choice between French, Russian and Latin and I learned, I picked Latin Um, and then I carried that right the way through to A-level. So I did six years of Latin um, and I absolutely loved it. It was my favourite class from basically the first time I did it um, as as an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, all the way through to 18 um, when I ended up applying for university. So listeners who have heard even one episode of against the law might be thinking hang on a second barney doesn't know anything about ancient rome he's the he's the egypt guy he's the ancient near eastern guy and that is true um and i so i had a bit of a strange journey after my six years of latin i applied for classics with uh, what was at the time called oriental studies i think they might have changed the name of that school now um at oxford and basically that meant taking a punt on something i knew nothing about which was what's come to be my great love um, of ancient Near Eastern studies and the study of Akkadian and the Epic of Gilgamesh. I bought myself a copy of the Epic of Gilgamesh when I was 16, I think. I really wanted to read it because and I had this love of the ancient cultures from all these games that I'd played and books that I'd read as a child. 
And uh, to this day, my Penguin Classics uh, Epic of Gilgamesh is the only book I've ever put a, a little book plate into. Um, and yeah, it's one of my most prized possessions. And it's very, very dog-eared. But yes, my paperback of the Epic of Gilgamesh was what made me apply to to um, potentially study ancient Near Eastern studies alongside classics. Unfortunately, I wasn't offered a place to do classics. My six years of Latin hadn't served me well enough. But um, the people that interviewed me were pleased enough with my abilities to guess what Akkadian meant that uh, I was offered a place on that course and the rest is history really uh, although that's another podcast so I probably shouldn't name drop that <laughs> just say against the law instead even though and the rest <laughs> and the rest is against the law <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be worth contrasting my sort of lack of classics education because uh from my perspective, my, my classics education ended in year six because I learned at primary school about the ancient Romans. We had a toga wearing day and the ancient Greeks. And I learned about Zeus and how important Zeus was and sort of his his buddies in the pantheon. And then Egyptians were, of course, pyramids and mummies. And it sort of ended there. But I've always had a love of history and a love of archaeology. And in fact, my husband, who uh, I've been with for nearly a decade now, when we were first going out, we used to watch Time Team together religiously every night. Um, so I love history, but I've never had the opportunity to take it any further. I did history GCSE, but that was all Cuban Missile Crisis stuff and Cold War and things like that. Um, so I haven't really had the opportunity to learn about classics or I wouldn't have really known where to start. So that never really cropped up as an option for me, but I would have been fascinated and I would have loved to have had the opportunity. And I think that's probably the same story as most children in the UK. Uh, Arlene, have I got that way off mark? No, I think your story is very representative of the stories that I hear from people, Flo, when I visit schools. And uh, when I speak to adults in adult education settings and I ask, the, ask, I ask them the question that you've asked us, um, how did you get into classics? Usually people talk about studying classics in primary schools. Usually they trace back this real interest, this kind of thirst for learning about the ancient world to the study of the Greeks and Romans in primary schools. And I'm pleased to say that it's still the case that that is compulsory in primary schools in England. So all children in England at Key Stage 2, that's between ages 6 and 11, they learn about the Greeks and Romans as part of the history curriculum. But as you've outlined, Flo, the real problem occurs when those students want to continue learning about the Greeks and Romans across that transition phase into secondary school. There are far fewer secondary schools offering classics, be it classical civilization or ancient history or Latin and Greek, than there are primary schools that have to teach the Greeks and Romans. That's something we're working on. It's definitely getting better, but there are still lots of flows out there who are saying, oh, I loved it in primary school. I'd really like to do it in secondary school, but unfortunately my school doesn't offer it yet. And I'd definitely like to highlight this yet because <laughs> I think it's certainly the case that we can uh, have every young person in the UK given the opportunity to study a classical subject at secondary school. If we work together as a classics community, to put the policy in place and put the funding in place to make that happen. Absolutely. Now, 
Arlene, we've all introduced our, our introduction into classics. Could we hear about yours? Where did it start for you? Yeah, well, um, I, I'm usually quite different from um, the others. As I mentioned, when I speak to people, usually they say primary school. I'll start in primary school. I started reading books about gods and goddesses or the, the stories of the myths. And it was just all so captivating. It was the stories that really got me. And um, as a pupil in Scotland... When I was at school, there was absolutely no study of classics on the primary school curriculum whatsoever. Scotland is is a devolved nation. Education works differently there from it does in England. And to this day, there is... Um, no compulsion for primary schools in Scotland to teach the Greeks and Romans. So I I don't have that story that you have, Flo, <laughs> of um, tracing this back to when I was a young child. But a bit like Xenia, I started learning Latin um, in, in high school, the first year of high school, and I loved it. It was something that just seemed very orderly and regular. You learn the formula, you apply the formula, you know you've got the right answer. There were very few gray areas, and that just really appealed to me. Um, I learned using the Scottish Classics Group publication, uh, which was Eki Romani. There were very few pictures. The picture were in black and white the text uh the font was very very small also entirely black and white looking at it now as a teacher and as an educator I would say it's not a great publication to introduce young people to the study of Latin the stories are not very fun or interesting but for me as an 11 year old um it was fun enough to get me hooked obviously I had to learn the Cambridge Latin course because as a high school teacher which is what I was for 12 years before I was an academic, I was teaching the Cambridge Latin course because nobody teaches Eki Romani anymore in UK schools or very few people do. So the Cambridge Latin course has a new fifth edition, uh, but there are also a couple of other new Latin textbooks which teachers can choose to use to teach Latin in the classroom. Uh, one is Suburani, which is not set in Pompeii. It's set in Rome and it's set in the Subura, which is not a particularly elite part of Rome. And the other is De Romanis, which is a textbook which focuses on mythology and the gods with lots of reading passages and and also sentences which students can translate from English into Latin. So there's a lot of choice on the market, much more than there was uh, even 10 years ago. Um, and all of these, I would say, are better than Eke Romani. That is amazing. Well, shall we talk then a little bit about what barriers have existed and how those are being tackled and what we can do to support people who want to learn about the classics? Yeah, I mean, I would identify three main barriers that I encounter in the work that I do um, to getting classics on the curriculum. Um, one is the baggage that classics has as a <laughs> curriculum subject. And I think we have to confront this and be really open and honest about it. Um, when I speak to school leaders about what classics is and why it might be interesting for them to consider adding it to the curriculum often they say things like but that's only for intellectual children surely that's only for top set english or top set modern languages quite often they say but that's what posh kids study that's what they teach at the private school down the road that's what 
people who pay for their education study. Mm-hmm. So the baggage, I think, is the elitism around intellectual elitism and financial elitism. And I am here to say that 100% we need to move away from this narrative about classics. Classics is for everyone and is not at all in the 21st century restricted to any individual groups of people let's not limit children before they've had the chance to develop the passion for it you know yeah exactly and it's been taught really successfully in schools around the country that are entirely comprehensive in their intake so i think that's one barrier that we can knock down another barrier is that the curriculum is already very crowded So if you look at what young people are learning in school aged 11 to 14, they have got a lot of subjects on their curriculum. And so school leaders often say, well, there's just not space for another. If we're going to add classics, what are we going to take away? Well, that's quite a tricky question. (laughs) Because I am not here to say that classics deserves a space on the curriculum more than any other curriculum subject. I'm here to say that all curriculum subjects deserve a space but the reality is that if we want people to study classics we need to find a way to make it fit and that's tricky and part of the reason why it's tricky and this is the third barrier that I often encounter is helping teachers to feel competent and confident to teach classics because we have generations of school leaders and school teachers who themselves didn't have the opportunity to study classics at school. So there's lots of help and support available to train teachers, to give them subject knowledge and pedagogical expertise to do this. But if they're actually qualified to teach history or if they're actually qualified to teach modern languages or physics or computing, and all of these teachers very successfully have taught classics, um, we need to make sure that we're giving them the support to be able to do that in a way which empowers them and makes the young people in their classroom feel like the person at the front of the room wants to be there teaching classics. But there's lots of support available. So Classics for All is a national charity and they make funding available to provide bespoke training for teachers who want to upskill to be able to teach classics. So this might be in the primary sector, a teacher who is currently teaching the Greeks and Romans, but thinks, actually, I'd like to teach some Latin to my primary school pupils. Uh, I'd like to teach Minimus, but I don't currently know any Latin. So I need somebody who knows something about Latin and something about teaching it to come to my school and train me. And Classics for All will provide funding for that to happen. But there's also funding available from the Classical Association, which is the National Subject Association for Classics. They'll provide grants to help schools have um, enrichment experiences for classics. So they might invite in somebody to run a mosaic making workshop The Roman and Hellenic societies will give state schools five or six hundred pounds per year to buy books on classical subjects. And the, I guess, biggest investment that's been made in the last couple of years for classics is the Latin Excellence Programme. So this could have been great for you, Flo. Um, People who attend state schools outside London and the southeast have 
been given wider access to the study of Latin and classics from age 11 to 16 as a result of a four million pounds investment from the Department for Education in the Latin Excellence Programme. So I'm not discounting the barriers, but I'm saying that there's a huge amount of financial support, but also mentoring and professional support available to help schools introduce classics if that's something that they want to do. That is a huge amount of support. That's really encouraging. I think that sounds fantastic. And hey, listen, if you ever want anybody to supervise on the mosaic making workshops, that sounds right up my street. I could definitely help out (laughs) with that. Amazing. I was just going to ask a question, Arlene, if that's okay. Like I said earlier, I work in sort of university access, which is obviously a slightly different field, but kind of related. Do you have a sort of answer to a question that I think kind of maybe relates to like the first couple of barriers that you discussed about people saying sort of what's the point of learning classics? And I think especially people in in terms of university, when people are thinking about attending university and thinking about the barriers, um, like especially financial barriers, perhaps thinking, well, why would I spend all that money on a dead language, on a, you know, all of those kind of questions? Do you have a sort of snappy answer for that? Yeah, so I think studying classics at university obviously involves a very significant financial investment and the type of people who are looking for return on investment like data you know they like to know so when I finish this course what are my chances of getting a job and in which sector is that job going to be and what are my Mm. lifetime earnings likely to be studying classics rather than history or philosophy as other humanities subjects or economics or engineering um and so i i'm a big fan of providing data and and the good news is data exists for um for these questions so the classical association in 2018 published a report called classics after the classroom and in there they surveyed people who had studied classics at university and by classics this is a broad definition of classics so it's any ancient world subject in higher education so it might be linguistic classics or non-linguistic classics but you can read the report and it gives you all the stats and basically they have um, case studies in there of people who studied ancient world studies or classical civilization at Roehampton or UCL people who studied classics at um, Edinburgh or Oxford and you get um, qualitative feedback from those people who reflect on the impact that that degree choice had on their career but you also get the statistics about what percentage of classics graduates ended up in which sector of work and that's really interesting at least I think it's really interesting but maybe I'm a geek for these things (laughs) no that does sound amazing yeah I mean the thing that I find really interesting about it is that there isn't actually a very dominant sector so mm. it's not the case that everybody who studies classics at university um, goes on and becomes a management consultant or an accountant or a lawyer. It's not the case that everybody who studies classics at university goes on to become a teacher or work in a museum, which is what some people are advised when they are choosing classics. You know, some you know friendly aunt might say, oh, well, you know, if you do that, you'll only, only ever be able to work in a museum or become a teacher. Not the case. Show them classics after the classroom, Classical Association 2018. Um, because... The graph shows that actually classicists are represented in every single sector of the economy. So from that perspective, I think it's a great launchpad of a degree because it equips people with skills. And I have written a a chapter 
in uh, my book, Forward with Classics. The chapter is called Classics in 21st Century Skills. And uh, again, <laughs> give these people data. I looked at what, what is the list of 21st century skills that we think people need in order to work well. And I evidenced how classics can deliver these along with my um, colleague, Catherine Tempest, who coincidentally co-authored Classics After the Classroom Report. So we know that classics are very, classics graduates are very employable. They're among the most employable humanities graduates. And it is a degree which is linked to reasonable lifetime earnings. Classicists are not going to be, uh, you know, the biggest earners uh, over the course of their lifetime, but they're certainly not going to be the smallest earners either. Right in the Goldilocks zone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the place to be. Yeah, fantastic. I didn't know about that. I think that's a that sounds like a brilliant resource. Arlene, I have a story um, about the about the whole working in a museum assumption. <laughs> um, so when I when I told my um, careers advisor at school that I wanted to study Latin and Greek at university, that I wanted to do classics, she was like, "Oh, okay. Well, then in that case, she was she was in charge of sorting out our work experience placements." And she said, okay, um, in that case, you have to go and do work experience at a museum. I was like, um, no, but I want to, okay, I want to study classics, but I want to work in TV. Can I, can I find myself a work experience placement in a TV production house, please? And she said, no, you have to work in a museum. So I ended up doing this placement in a museum but then also doing a placement in the um, in a TV production house, but I had to organise the the second one myself because she just she just did not compute that like classics could mean something other than than curatorship. It's also just astonishing given how few jobs there are in museums. Like, where do these people think all these jobs are coming from? That every single <laughs> classicist graduating university is finding museum jobs. It's madness. I also had a question for Arlene. You mentioned the the study classics um, after the classroom, but I wondered what you thought the role of of popular culture um, is in sort of classics outside of the classroom, and how you know you mentioned so many new forms of support that are available, um, and the, the the Latin Excellence Program and stuff like that. I just wondered if you had noticed any sort of changes in. Uh, literature whether children's or adults in tv media films video games anything like that that are sort of helping to draw more people towards classics or or if maybe the opposite is true and actually that um there's there's been a decrease i just wondered if you'd notice any trends there yeah so i think we're riding the crest of a wave at the moment um and i'm an optimist so this makes me very happy i think we're in a really strong position currently not just in classics academia or classics education but the perception of classics in the public eye um and that is definitely linked to the increase in the exposure of the ancient world in things like video games and particularly in novels. So um, a couple of colleagues of mine uh, wrote a really interesting book about classics and video games, Kate Cook and Jane Draycott, and uh, they have have surveyed uh, the innovations in video games that have links to classics and have put together an edited volume on that. But I think we've, we're also seeing far more books being written about the ancient world, which are becoming popular reads. So 
reading on the beach for example part of Richard and Judy's um summer book club we see books by Bethany Hughes we see books by Natalie Haynes we see books by Madeline Miller exactly Madeline Madeline Miller and Jennifer Saint and these books are often female retellings of um, ancient myths or ancient literature but have captured the public opinion in such a way that people want to follow these people on social media they want to learn more they want to go to talks with the author they get really excited when the author tweets or posts about um some classics geekery and i think this is helping turning this is helping to turn the tide in schools so the classical association is currently collaborating with the historical association and many of the history teachers who are now interested in teaching ancient history have come to ancient history not because they have any sort of professional connection but because personally they've been inspired by tv shows that they've seen of michael scott or mary beard and certainly by books that they've read that have made them think oh a period of history that i don't know a lot about but it sounds really cool I want to get this training and introduce this in my school. And obviously, as someone who um, advocates for classics education, that makes me delighted. That's such a brilliant response. Thank you so much. And it's actually, it's, it just made me think of, um, you know, the, the generation that maybe um, the hosts of this podcast represent um, had access to certain, I'd say, blockbuster movies. Maybe that was quite a big thing. So we had Troy and 300 that came out when we were younger. Um, and I think that certainly helped, if not inspire, then reinforce interest that people might have had. But I think one of the things that we love to do on on Against the Law um, is not to necessarily disregard these popular forms of media, but to look for opportunities to kind of take the enthusiasm that those films generate and then say, well, you know, if you liked 300, then here's the real story behind it. And here's our approach on it. You know, we never really like to like throw too much out and say this is rubbish. Don't watch it, which maybe is a bit gatekeepery. Um, I think all of these forms of media provide brilliant opportunities for us to kind of respond and inspire. I think seem to remember we once um, positioned Anne Hathaway as the perfect casting for Enkidu. So it's potentially an <laughs> understatement that we don't gatekeep. <laughs> yeah, and I, I applaud your approach fully because this is exactly the approach that I take to. I really don't mind what pathway people come to the classical world using i think that we should be embracing all of these forms of classical reception and absolutely as you say barney if you like this we can we can show you some more we can give you a new menu from which you can choose uh if you like history we'll show you this stuff if you like literature we'll show you that stuff if you like drama we'll give you this if you like art art and architecture then we've got some amazing stuff in store for you philosophy We've got you covered. Um, and I think the innovation that I would like to see is this stuff being on the curriculum for GCSE and A-level. <gasps> My colleagues throw their arms up. Um, Denmark <laughs> has a compulsory paper for um, school leaving level of uh, classical civilization. They have a compulsory paper on classical reception where Danish teenagers, 17 and 18 year olds, are encouraged to look around their environment 
be it public architecture or video games or anything in between, and write about their critical analysis of that uh, use of the classical world, what people in academia would call classical reception. And I think that's missing from GCSE and A-level qualifications in England, from hires and advanced hires in Scotland. And that's something that I would love to see. Why? Because I think it keeps classics relevant and interesting in the 21st century. And I think that that counts as classics too. And I get really annoyed with, you've used the word gatekeeper, I guess, um, I guess I might use that word too. Um, I get really annoyed with people who gatekeep the discipline to say, well, that's proper classics but then this stuff is not proper classics. And it applies quite a bit to classics education. Like, mm, well, you know, writing a commentary on Virgil or Homer, that's proper classics. But researching classics, teaching and learning, that's not proper classics. And I think that's holding the discipline back. I think we just need to work together as a classics community and value everybody's work and say classical reception is classics. Classics education is classics. Writing commentaries on Homer and Virgil is also classics. Let's all embrace and advocate for classics. Arlene, I absolutely love that. I think that's so, so wonderful. And I fully agree because I think that is that is why for me learning about classics today is just as important as it ever was because it is all around us because it has had influence on um, as as you said architecture literature language we love etymology are on against the law and I think it is important to know where your words come from and where that sort of Palladian design <laughs> comes from in your buildings um or where this um, really, like, where this kind of turn of phrase comes from that we use every day in common parlance. I think that is so, so important. And we we live classics every day. And to know that background through classics just helps you to read the world around you in a much richer way. Um, that, for me, is what is so important about studying classics. While I loved learning Latin myself, um, I'm not I'm not too fussed about trying to get everyone to learn Latin. But what I do think is super important is understanding like where all of these cultural references came from, because it's such such a, like a deep mine of layers and layers of information and um, and meaning. I also really, from a personal perspective, love the whole concept of going against law because along with having a limited classics education sometimes I've had an incorrect classics education and actually learning where things in popular culture maybe aren't correct maybe they've been represented as something really sexy or something really really anachronistic I think that's that's been really exciting to learn where things are a bit wrong with classics education in the sort of in the general sense rather than in schooling or in sometimes as we find out that we've been taught in schools that isn't quite right yeah and I guess I would just preface that um reflection by saying that ancient history for me is this kind of unsolvable puzzle you know we've got we've got parts of the jigsaw but parts of the jigsaw are still missing and so we're doing our best to kind of fit them together and although what we're teaching on the curriculum in schools at the moment we think is the right thing um and in universities you know we we think that we've got the details as correct as possible 
it could be that with a new discovery in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years time, we'll realize that actually we've been teaching things which are not correct. And we need to completely reframe the way that we have been teaching what are thought to be um, common and agreed topics. Your job as a teacher is to empower young people to feel like their opinion about this matters. What did they think this object was used for? That's such a lovely point. Also, just to jump off that, I think linking back to the reception thing, there's also like, this is kind of an obvious point, but that is also what reception is doing, right? It's like reinterpreting things. And it's not so much kind of a factual error, or as you say, like something we're not sure about, which is also extremely exciting, but just things which are can be open to interpretation. And like we were talking about earlier, all those feminist retellings, or sort of books with new perspectives or whatever, it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? It's, it's keeping it fresh, keeping it alive. And it's just a constant sort of exploration of it rather than drawing hard lines or facts that's lovely let's not forget that the standard version of the epic of gilgamesh is just uh akkadian reception of the sumerian original so true we can't get into translation chat guys because i'll speak for six and a half hours <laughs> yeah i think i think we sometimes underestimate young people and um i think if we did a bit more listening and a bit less talking <laughs> in the classroom um when we're teaching classics to i mean even primary school pupils you know like they primary school pupils are so creative and so innovative in the way that they approach puzzles that um yeah i i think if we've got any grown-ups listening who are uh, struggling with a classics problem my top tip is ask a young person who is not yet not yet jaded with the world and probably they'll come up with a list of possible solutions to your problem so this episode has been fascinating for me and and i'm sure for all of our listeners as well but let's reflect back on the fate either i'll give us an option here either our favorite thing that we've learned today or our favorite way of supporting classics and supporting classics education so Arlene I'm going to go with you first because you're our guest and we usually double up on our favorite things otherwise so I'm going to let you go first you go ahead what's your favorite thing so I feel very privileged and honored that you've given me first dibs at this thank you um so undoubtedly for me my favorite thing is the adorable image of Xenia reciting the lines of the Aeneid uh, in bed uh, on the day that she had been taught it in the Roman style classroom I think that is absolutely precious it is so precious and I gotta be honest that was going to be my thing as well it was just so precious so delightfully nerdy if you'll let me say Xenia <laughs> it was very very sweet oh thank you when it when someone says it back to me I just realized how nerdy it sounds but thank you I'm glad that's also sweet in a way <laughs> and Xenia because it's your story that was Arlene's favorite I'm going to go over to you now what was your favorite thing from today so my favourite thing was just finding out from Marlene about all of the different resources that are available for teachers who want to teach classics, whether or not they've got a background in classics themselves. I think that's so fantastic that there are, you know, there's so much help available for anyone who has an interest in it and wants to like foster that interest in their students. That's so inspiring. And I, I really hope that lots of people who listen to this podcast go away and take advantage of those fantastic resources. Thank you for sharing them, Marlene. 
that was fun to learn about. Uh, Meg, I'm going to go over to you next. What was your favourite thing? I think this is probably predictable. My favourite thing was our discussion of classical reception and how important it is. And did you say it was was it in Denmark, Arlene, where it's, it's an essential part of um, of their studies, kind of looking at the current world? And Yes, it is. Yeah, the subject is called Oldegudskab. Okay, <laughs> which is classical civilization in Danish. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, I really, really love that. That my PhD was in classical reception, so that is a subject area that's very close to my heart, and I feel like that is how it stays relevant. And I think you're absolutely so right that it is part of classics just as much as you know reading Virgil is or whatever. Not that we shouldn't be reading Virgil, but it's it's they're all equal parts of classics. Absolutely agreed. Here, I enjoyed that too. And Barney, what was your favourite thing? So my favourite thing was uh, Arlene's response to the question of why study classics and especially why study classics at a, a university level, for example, to fight data with data. I love that. Like the the very people, the same people who are worried about, you know, job prospects and, and lifetime earnings and stuff like that. Just just hit them with the data. Um, like I'm a bit of a sucker for data sometimes, maybe not in, in like that kind of intensely like decision making analytical way. But I think that's a brilliant response and certainly not one that I've ever really heard to the question of yeah, why should I why should I study classics before? So love that insight. That study sounded absolutely brilliant. The classics after the classroom. So thank you for that recommendation. I would probably just expand on what Barney said, that I love the sheer amount of support that is available uh, to classics education. So if you know any students, if you know any teachers, if you are a teacher, if you are a student, get out there, start spreading the news, make an effort, because classics is fascinating, as I've learned taking part in this podcast. So thanks again, listeners, for tuning in for this episode of Against the Law. Arlene, how can people find you and ask you questions or grill you, hopefully very gently, uh, after they've listened to this episode? I'm really happy for people to contact me, particularly if they want to be connected to those organisations that I mentioned who can provide funding and support to introduce or extend classics in schools. Probably the best way to contact me is on Twitter, now known as X. Um, my handle is at Prof Arlene HH. I'm very active on Twitter, so you'll definitely see me tweeting about classics education there. But you can also... Uh, find my website www.profarlenehh.com there you'll see all of my publications what I've written about classics education and there's also a way of contacting me directly via the website that is wonderful thank you ever so much uh, and you can join us next time for another episode of against the law if you've enjoyed today's episode you can always choose to support us on patreon we've got all sorts of tiers for every budget starting from just three pounds a month Benefits include getting each episode a day early, stickers and your name in cuneiform. You can find us on Twitter at Against Law and you can also find us on TikTok at Against the Law Podcast. We're also always happy to hear suggestions, questions about the podcast and other requests. If you want to email us, our email is againstthelawpodcast at gmail.com.